Welcome to Talk Dizzy to Me, the show that brings you a comprehensive look into the complex field of dizziness. Now here are your hosts, vestibular physical therapist, Dr. Abby Ross and Dr. Danielle Tolman. Welcome back to another episode of Talk Dizzy to Me. I'm Dr. Danielle Tolman, a vestibular physical therapist, and as always, joined by my co-host, Dr. Abby Ross, also a vestibular physical therapist and neuroclinical specialist. And today we have a really super cool episode for you guys. We are also joined by two guests, one definitely a fan favorite. We've got Jeff Walter with us and then a newcomer, Dan Streeter. So Jeff, let's start with you. Can you just give us a little introduction, uh, introduce yourself, and then we'll pass it over to Dan. Uh, sure. I work at Geisinger Medical Center in central Pennsylvania. I only see patients with dizziness and balance problems. I have an additional interest in teaching and research. Um, I have a lot of courses on MedBridge if you're interested. I just turned 50 like a week or two ago. Happy birthday. Yeah, uh, yeah, real exciting. You want to know what I got for my birthday present, by the way, Danny? What'd you get? I got a colonoscopy. That exciting. <laughs> that is Thanks very exciting. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Dan, why don't you uh, introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about you? Sir, I've, I've been at this for 12 years as a PT, seeing um, kind of a combination of orthopedic and some vestibular ther uh, patients for sure. Um, my first you know, journey on this was when my, uh, my boss looked at me and said, do you have any experience treating patients who are dizzy? I said, I just got out of school about three months ago. So yeah, it's still fresh in my brain. So I kind of took a stab at it. And uh, it, it led us into the fact that we need to know more about this. And so we had Sue Whitney come to our office and gave us a two-day sort of crash course on what to do for folks in an outpatient orthopedic setting that might be presenting like this. And it sort of made me want more. So went in for, you know, a few different continuing education courses over the weekends. Definitely saw a few of your courses, Jeff, on MedBridge. Danielle came to our office a couple of years ago. Uh, during that time frame, I also became a, a Maitland therapist. And so a lot of that um, has to do with provoking symptoms, which is a lot of what we do as vestibular therapists. So, um, and then I've, um, you know, we've recently got the infrared goggles uh, at Danielle's recommendation. And so seeing uh, the video that you guys will see today um, has been one that I've watched a gajillion times and so thankful that we've made that recommendation and embraced this piece of technology, because frankly, I don't know how we would treat these complex cases without them. So, but glad to be here. Thanks for having me again. So this brings us to why we're here today with this specific type of episode. For those of you listening on the podcast, um, you know, I'd recommend checking this episode out on YouTube because we do have some visuals, but we'll, we'll do our best to talk through them. Dan had sent me this really cool uh, video. He's like, there's a lot going on here. He's like, check this out. And when I first saw this video, just, you know, by itself, I thought it was a great example of how things don't necessarily present the way you think or anticipate they're going to present during uh, positional testing. So this video today is an infrared video, infrared goggle video uh, of a patient going through the positions of an Epley maneuver. And what's so interesting about it is we see a lot of different types of nystagmus here that we want to talk about in isolation. So all of you vestibuloholics who are watching and following along, I know you're going to be thinking of, well, what did he look like with this? Well, what happened with that? And what else has been going on? 
we want to purely look at this just as a problem solving uh, video in isolation. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to look just at this video. We're going to talk about what we're seeing and then what kind of implications those uh, that testing might have and what we'd like to do in, with that patient in theory uh, moving forward if they were sitting right in front of us at that moment. So uh, without further ado, I'm going to pull up our video here. We're going to hit play. And again, this is a patient in infrared goggles. Uh, we're going to take them through an Epley maneuver. In the video, you'll see what position they're in as it's labeled. Um, and we're just going to kind of chat along here. So here we go. By the way, our YouTube channel is under Balancing Act Resources, if you want to pull that up. All right. So we're in position one of the Epley with that head turned to the right, lying down flat, keeping that head turned. Uh, so what type of nystagmus are we seeing here, Dan? Seeing a burst of geotropic nystagmus, so to the right. Okay. And we know from Ewald's laws that nystagmus is generated by the canal that's being stimulated, right? So in this position, we typically test for uh, a posterior canal involvement, um, but here we're seeing horizontal nystagmus. So Jeff, what does that tell you looking at something like this right away? Well, a couple comments to maybe clinicians that aren't as experienced. Sometimes when you see intense nystagmus like this, you may think, oh man, I can tell it's horizontal, but it's really difficult to discern which direction the fast phase is in. Bear with it because as that video played out, it was more evident that the fast phase was to the right as the nystagmus slowed. So when you see really, really violent nystagmus, just stick with it and you can see as the video plays out, that it does seem to develop the theme where the fast phase is quicker to the right. Um, so when you see a burst of geotropic nystagmus that dies out, the first thing you should think about is horizontal canal canalizes. And the nice thing is about, there's really not a large differential of other entities that can generate bursts of geotropic nystagmus. So a burst of geotropic nystagmus that decrescendos and decrescendos and makes your patient vertiginous is very specific to canalithiasis of the horizontal canal. There's not really a large differential there. Other things that can create geotropic nystagmus like a light cupula or Michelob <laughs> would cause sustained nystagmus, not a burst that you know, crescendos and decrescendos like we just saw. Yep. Uh, totally. I think everyone's on the same page. Here's where it, things get a little bit interesting moving forward. So that burst of geotropic nystagmus settled down and the patient hasn't moved. They're still in that first position of a right epi. So head is turned to the right and they're extended backwards. And now we're seeing a reversal. So now we're just looking at this, you know, persistent uh, apogeotropic type of nystagmus. Now, you know, I'll admit, you know, originally I thought that maybe this also meant the patient had a cupulolithiasis potentially on top of having canalithiasis. But Jeff, I, I, you were mentioning before we hit record here that that might not necessarily be the case that there's something else to consider here. So what else can we consider here with this uh, reversal of nystagmus without any movement? Yeah, I think that we're very likely looking at um what's called short-term central nervous system compensation. So maybe if we can pause the video for a second. Mm -hmm. 
So we this patient was put back basically in a right Dix Hall bike position, which is similar to Epley position number one. Correct. Um, and the patient experienced intense geotropic nystagmus beating to the right. Um, so quickly, your nervous system recognizes that that's an air signal because you have other senses that are feeding your brain the information that, hey, you're not moving. This is error. It's a mistake. So your brain attempts to help you compensate by generating the reverse eye movement. So the patient was having a burst of right beating. So there's leftward eye, you know, the compensation for that would be nystagmus beating to the left. And so it's like the brain is sending a firefighter to a fire that just went out on its own, but it's still dousing it with water and it's causing the nystagmus to go in the opposite direction. We see this most commonly with horizontal canal BPPV, especially canalithiasis. And it's more common when the nystagmus has been intense, like what we just saw with this patient. So that's the first thing I would think about with that is that that's short-term central nervous system compensation that is too late and no longer needed um, with this patient because the patient just had a transient asymmetry theoretically from horizontal canal canalithiasis. That's a really good reminder. I mean, I'm aware of that phenomenon and, you know, for some reason, even after watching this video multiple times, that didn't uh, even occur to me as an, as a possibility because I had in my head that this was just positional related with crystals. And this is one of the reasons why I love doing stuff like this and being able to pick the brains of other clinicians, especially like a superstar like Jeff, because it's like, oh, that's right. The, having that little bit of reminder is so, so important. So I think that's a really good point, Jeff. And a that really phase can point. be quite protracted in patients, often longer than the first phase you saw. So it's often light. It's almost always lighter. It's I've never seen it be stronger than his initial phase. So it's usually lighter and more protracted, this compensatory phase. And patients can have some mild oscillopsia with it and feel a little unsteady, but it's not as symptom inducing as the first phase we saw with the patient. Yeah. It is interesting to note too, and maybe you can comment on this, Jeff, is he had a real violent burst of geotropic nystagmus and had almost minimal symptoms. I mean, he had a fog, you know, he was very, minimally symptomatic with this particular position. And I, I know that we see all different sorts of dizzy patients. You've seen a, a plethora more than I have, but you got people that have maybe a couple of beats and they're, you know, they're super symptomatic, right? Yeah. So just to comment on that. And it, what was the patient's age? 50, 54-ish. Uh, anxious or laid back? Laid back. So that's really interesting, Dan. Um, so the term that we're starting to use for patients who, for example, we do caloric tests and we, you know, we're applying peripheral stimulation to the patient and we get nystagmus with the test and they don't care one iota, like they have no sensation they're even moving. Um, we're terming that vestibular agnosia. So that means you're just, you're this, Tibular sensations are not re reaching your higher cabbage in your brain. Like you just don't have a conscious perception of it. Interestingly, it still creates postural instability. Yeah. So patients are still unstable on their feet, but they don't have like this conscious sense of movement. So that would be unusual, but I think that that's very plausible. If you have a patient who's, I see it more in males who are just kind of yeah. laid back that 
they're only disturbed when they're in a threatening posture. And if they're laying supine on a bed, no matter what you're doing in the way of vestibular stimulation, they just don't care too much because they're not threatened by it. They just talked about vestibular agnosia at the International mm -hmm. Conference for Vestibular Rehabilitation in Minneapolis. They had a, a whole presentation on it, and it was pretty darn wild to see some new video examples of these patients with this. I mean, I, Abby, I don't if you remember, that was like the craziest uh, uh, high amplitude nystagmus I think I've ever seen. And this patient had it didn't phase them one bit like there was nothing going on. So that was a really interesting concept to bring up. That sounds like it could be a future study someday about personality traits and whether or not the agnosia presents more in laid back individuals like you see clinically, Jeff. Yeah, I agree. I also think it'd be interesting to look at vestibular agnosia and fall risk because I think it's a risk for falling when you are unaware of what your ear is telling you <laughs> until you're falling. I think it's a risk for falls potentially, but I think there's a little bit of literature on that, but it's definitely something that probably needs to be looked into further. One question for Dan, was this done with fixation denied? In other words, patient in the dark or was he fixated? No, no he was uh, he was in the dark. It'd be helpful. When diagnosing canalithiasis of the horizontal canal, if your patient's not disturbed by it at all, you might want to retest or remove remove the cover and see if the patient at least tells you things are moving in the room. Because with brain origin nystagmus, it's much more common for a patient not to be disturbed by it. So Got it. it'd be interesting to know if he had that violent of nystagmus with fixation, does he at least report to you, oh yeah, things in the room are moving or shifting at least. Um, I think he probably would with it that violent, but in the dark, he just may not, he obviously won't have the oscillopsia. Um, Makes complete sense. So you might want to check that. Quick question too. So having, having the patient with fixation removed, would that um, potentially amplify or create a greater amplitude nystagmus for that, with that central nervous system compensation? Uh, we would maybe see less of it if they had fixation because you can suppress the horizontal nystagmus. Right. Yeah. A comment on that would be, you ain't suppressing what happened in the beginning of that video, whether your fixation present or not, because that nystagmus was so violent. Mm -hmm. But you could suppress that second phase if you could gaze at something. It's such a lower velocity. We're better at humans at suppressing low velocity nystagmus. So that second phase could be suppressed. So if you don't have goggles, you really won't see it which actually might've helped you in this case because it creates confusion. So not to, not to get off a little bit, but I did play with the light a little bit and had him fixated, um, you know, with gaze holding and his nystagmus was certainly suppressed in those positions. Um, so that makes sense. The goggles are a blessing and a curse sometimes because they give you lots of information, but sometimes it's too much. <laughs> you get things that really aren't clinically directly relevant to why your patient's seeing you there. That's, I think one of the challenges of doing vestibular when you is sorting out what's relevant from what's not really relevant to why you're seeing a patient because you get sometimes more than what you need. <laughs> sometimes it's about triaging too, right? Like trying to identify what to treat first and then watching things kind of fall into place as you start to peel back those layers. Right. Cool. So if we could glean a clinical pearl from what we've discussed so far, one might be if you are confused because the nystagmus appears to change, try retesting with fixation in this case. 
Like it, there's lots of clinical pearls. I mean, I'm still, it's, it's crazy how much information we can get just from, from all getting together like this and discussing. I love it. Uh, I, can't wait to tell, I can't wait to tell Mark that he might be vestibularly agnostic about the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to get a big kick out of that. <laughs> All right, let's move on into um, the position two of the epi. So the patient's now rolling their head, keeping their head extended and rolling their head to the left. So now that we're essentially in this almost like a left exhaul pipe position, we're seeing a little bit of left torsional upbeat nystagmus at this point in time. Is that what you guys agree? Yes. I'm still assessing. <laughs> I'm not sure I really saw a lot of upbeat. I think there might have been some torsional, left torsional component, but I think a lot of it's geotropic. All right. So that's that's interesting. So looking at the torsion, I would have I would have thought that there was some upbeat there, but you know, kind of playing it back now, you could make the argument that it's just pure torsion. One thing that helps when you're looking for upbeat is the lids should bounce vertically when you see upbeat. Okay. I'm just replaying this a couple of times for times for us. So as we're like right there, the lids, the lower lids are not bouncing vertically. Yeah, that but was then as it plays, it seems to right there more so. Yeah. I see that. You see it more in the uh patient's right eye versus the left eye. I don't know if there's a little bit of difference in the bottom lid, but it definitely it definitely switches to just a uh geotropic nystagmus for a little bit as well. Yes which then looks like it kind of just slows down and hangs out in this almost like a persistent geotropic position. The patient kind of hangs out here for a while. It was in there again, not very symptomatic here at all, Dan. He was in that fog. But not dizzy. Not super dizzy, no. Well, I have a comment. It does seem like it's slowing down. Yeah. What's your comment, Jeff? Well, one thing is we never really, from position one, the left beats really never stopped. That compensatory phase from position one never really stops. When you roll him over to his left, you still got that ball rolling downhill, his tendency to have left beats. Yeah. I think when you first turn his head, it increases in intensity and then kind of. So Last here we, we still have a pretty good generated left beating response moving into position two. Right. It enhances. But yeah. I remember, he never really stopped with left. The patient never really had cessation of the left beats in position one. So who are we to say that it's not just a continuation of that first burst he had at the beginning somewhat? Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Would, you know, the accentuation when you first roll them is probably horizontal canal canalithiasis enhancing the geotropic nystagmus and then we're still dealing with a little bit of the short-term central nervous system compensation from that first mega burst the patient had when we brought him back. Well that would make sense then in terms of nixing the theory of cupulolithiasis because in this position you expect to see if that there was cupulolithiasis a slowing down of this geotropic nystagmus it kind of stopping and then going into a reversal of apogeotropic, correct, in theory? Yeah, but I don't want to get too complicated here, but this patient could reverse in this position. If you wait long enough. We, they could have another bout of short-term central nervous system compensation from the geotropic burst beating to the left with turning the head left. Okay. 
Should we move on to position three? Anything else to comment on there? I think if I saw that in the clinic, I would put in my back pocket that I need to double check left Dick's Hall Pikes with this patient when I'm done treating their horizontal canal BPD, because I still, I agree, there would look like there's some torsion there. And that's hard to reconcile with posterior canal involvement or with horizontal canal involvement. I would want to focus on the horizontal canal here and then probably at a follow-up visit, look at left Dick's Hall Pike testing closely to see if they have a little bit of multi-canal BPPB, meaning left posterior canal BPPB. Also. I, like, I like that approach because it definitely seemed like that uh, horizontal canal involvement was pretty violent and prob probably probably the more uh, if there was if there were symptoms would have been the more symptom provoking issue. So treating that on the on that visit and then bringing them back for retesting to see where the chips fell type of a, of a scenario makes a lot of sense. Um, if I run into horizontal ipsilateral posterior and horizontal canal BPPD in the same ear, I will treat posterior canal first that day and then horizontal canal, and that doesn't spook me because you're not putting the affected ear. There's treatments we can do where you don't have to put the affected ear dependent. If you're doing the posterior canal. But when you got contralateral posterior canal BPPD, and you know, you got your ipsilateral horizontal canal BPPD, I would treat whatever canal seems more involved, which usually the horizontal canal wins that battle. I wouldn't want to treat both those in the same day because you could be chasing your tail there, potentially. Because when you do your, um, whichever one you decide to treat first, you're going to put that at risk when you treat the contralateral side, if that makes sense. Makes sense. All right, let's move on here to position three. So now the person's going to roll completely onto their left side with their nose kind of pointing down towards that mattress at an angle. It seems like we still have some continuation of that uh, geotropic nystagmus. But, but it decays. But it decays, yep. Pretty quickly. And now it's reversing. Mm -hmm. So we just put, I mean, with those two positional changes, we did just induce a pretty good burst of geotropic nystagmus. So this could potentially, again, be central nervous system compensation. To the other side. Correct. Yep. Okay. So, I mean, you know, I'll admit when I first saw that, like the multiple times I saw this video, it wasn't until today talking to Jeff, you know, he turns on that light bulb that I would have, I would have also gone to the um, sense of thinking that there was also cupula with ISS here. Um, so it's, it's tricky, tricky stuff, but, you know, walking through this and kind of problem solving and breaking this down, it kind of helps to clear things up if you go slow enough. Does that sound about right? Yep. The other comment from this video is from only looking at this video, probably the right side's involved, but you really should do supine roll testing to discern clearly what sides involved and then if needed do a bow and lean test and just so in review for people that aren't familiar with the supine roll test the geotropic nystagmus should be uh more intense to the involved side than the uninvolved side do judge that based on more than a sample size of one if you have a patient that's tolerant of it and then if you're still not sure um, it's very helpful to do a bow and lean test so you have your patient sitting, 
and you can even you can either have them bend forward at the hips or their noses towards the ground. You want to go down 120 degrees because remember our horizontal canals sit tipped up about 30 degrees higher in the front than in the back. So we want to bow 120. So you really want to get a lot of flexion of the head downward towards the floor. If it's cantalithiasis like we're expecting, and if it's the right side, you should get a burst of right beating that's transient when you bow the head. The bow portion of the bow and lean is nose towards the floor. And then when you have the patient lean back, head extended nose to ceiling, the nystagmus should again be transient and beat to the uninvolved side. So that's really helpful for lateralization with horizontal canal cantalithiasis. It'll beat to the affected side when you bend forward. It'll beat to the unaffected side when you lean back. And the nystagmus shouldn't be sustained in one direction. If it were sustained in one direction, that would kind of steer you away from cantalithiasis and make you think more cupulolithiasis. Uh, when you go back, by the way, it's back, you want to go back 60 degrees. So it's down 120, back 60. To get, a, you're trying to get the canals aligned with gravity. And if you were doing the bow and lean on a patient that had cupulolithiasis, the directionality would be opposite. So you would bow forward to get the unaffected side and have them lean backwards to have nystagmus beach to the affected side for cupulolithiasis in this case. Correct. And the nystagmus with cupulolithiasis should be more intense when their nose is towards the ceiling because that's the excitatory nystagmus. I think with uh, it should be more when they bend towards the bow. I think Rick Clendaniel says up with the cup. So look up for cupulolithiasis to, to remember which which direction to test for the side for the affected side. I like mm -hmm. that test a lot, actually. Yeah, um, you really need video goggles, I think to do a bow and lean test. Otherwise you're on the floor trying to look up the patient's eyes. Like <laughs> video goggles are really helpful. Could you see the compensation hap happen with bow and lean as well? Yeah, the nystagmus with a bow and lean test usually isn't as intense um, as what you see with a supine roll test. So I see it less often then, but you can. Whenever you're dealing with that short-term central nervous comp compensation confusion nystagmus that we talked about, I honestly, like if I do a right roll test and I see a burst of right beats and then they go into left beats, I'll, if they're secure and their head's on the pillow, I'll come over and write their note for a while and just wait for it to go away and stop. So it's not polluting your next test. So don't be afraid when, you're, when you think you're seeing that and if your patient's secure on the table, just go away for a while and let it go away before you move the patient's head again. So it's not confusing your judgment with your next test. That's a good clinical pearl for any vestibular test you do. If you stir up a burst of nystagmus, like you do a head shake test, and the patient gets right beat nystagmus after we do a head shake test, just let that calm down completely. And that can have a compensatory phase too. So you want to wait that out before you go and do hyperventilation testing with the patient. Because if you do test consecutively too quickly, the prior test could be polluting your next test and really confusing you. So if you stir something up, let it calm down before you do your next maneuver with the patient or next test with the patient. I think that's a good piece of advice. I think we saw a lot of instances on that video where I probably could have let that calm down a little bit first before we went on. And yeah, and he, and I think talking about the patient a little bit before he was laid back and has gone through quite a bit of testing at this point that he could have, 
tolerated at that point. So it's a, it's a good clinical pour for me for sure. I, I definitely need to slow down because I'm totally guilty of doing this sometimes when you've got a packed day and your schedule feels mm-hmm. cramped and you want to get through things. And Abby, we did, if you remember an episode, I think way, way back when we first started Talk Dizzy to Me, where I actually had to go through a video with Jeff and he had to walk me through what I was doing wrong on this role test of why it got so confusing because it also involves central nervous system compensation and accidentally fixing a horizontal canalothiasis with a role test. And I'll link that in the show notes. It's definitely worth a watch, but I had to sit down and call Jeff and be like, what did I do here? And he had to walk me through exactly what happened. And again, light bulb moments, which is amazing uh, to be able to talk, have somebody to talk through this stuff with. This is why we bring in the big guns. Yeah. <laughs> I'm 50. My guns are saggy. Um, <laughs> one other clinical pearl with this isn't published anywhere. This is just personal experience. If you start out, like almost all of us, when we do positioning tests, start out with Dick's Hall Pike because posterior canal involvement is more common. If you do Dick's Hall Pike testing and you see a burst of geotropic nystagmus, usually the involved horizontal canal is the opposite one if you look at modeling debris in a horizontal canal is more likely to slide and move um, when you do a contralateral dick's hall pike not an ipsilateral dick's hall pike so if i have a negative left dick's hall pike and then i do a right dick's hall pike and i get geotropic nystagmus i'm already thinking it's the left side it's the other side um, I, I found that to be pretty reliable. It's not 100%, but it's probably like 80%. You still need to do your supine roll test and may need to do your bow and lean, but start right. thinking it's the other ear when you see that. That makes so much sense. Again, that'd be perfectly applicable to that previous case that you that I had to uh, come running to you for help with to figure out what I did. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, the other thing that I, you know, Again, for a novice clinician, when you do a Dick's Hall bike, just because you see a flurry of nystagmus that crescendos and decrescendos doesn't mean it's posterior canal. You got to look closely at the eye movement. You know, if you're seeing a horizontal nystagmus, the eyes don't lie. That's not being generated by the posterior canal. So I've seen some, I have neurology residents that observe with me. And a lot of times when this scenario happens, I do a Dick's Hall bike and there's a burst of geotropic. And they sit there and watch it with me. I'll ask them, well, what would you do next after seeing that? And they're like, well, we'll do an epley. I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. I said, what did you see? Well, yeah, but your Dick's Hall Pike was positive. I'm like, yeah, but what type of nystagmus did we see? And they're like, well, it was horizontal. And I said, well, the posterior canal doesn't have the ability to generate pure horizontal eye movement. We need to think outside the posterior canal. And epley is a treatment for the posterior canal. So. Look closely at the eye movements when you test patients. Don't assume that it's always posterior canal. And how many times do patients go to their first line of defense? They get tested in Dick's Hall Pike. They immediately go to Epley. Epley doesn't work. They wonder why Epley doesn't work. And it's probably similar to that case that you just yep. described. Yep. Yeah, because then here with the scenario we just went over, you're doing you're treating the wrong canal and the wrong side. <laughs> If anything, you're probably, by doing an epley to the wrong ear, wrong canal, you're driving the debris towards the cupula mm-hmm. on the horizontal canal on the other side. So you could be making that patient feel worse because if you got a big wad of debris caught to your cupula, you can really feel pretty miserable. So it's generally good not to make patients worse. Generally. 
Yeah. I don't think that's therapeutic. No, not very. Well, this, this is exactly what I was hoping for out of this video. Dan, can you just give us uh, give us some closure? Tell us how the patient did, how they're feeling uh, these days and what they're up to. Sure. I talked to him yesterday. He's happy as a clam. He and his wife, uh, they travel cross country in their RV. He just came back from Ontario. They've got their e-bikes out. He's feeling really good. So, um, you know, ultimately with all the maneuvers that we did, whether they be in the right um, progression of, um, you know, maybe clinical guidelines would say that he did get better and he is thriving. Um, I will have to make a quick plug for him because I always have to add in the human element to all this. We had gotten to the end of his treatment and he, you know, again, we had talked about how this patient was relatively laid back, but you could tell he was getting a little frustrated with everything. So we, we did ultimately take a couple of weeks off and we did that because, you know, he was having some brief limitations in doing what he loves to do and that's making guitars. So this guy, owns and you can check him out uh, i think we linked to the website um snakehillstudio.com and he makes these amazing custom guitars he made one from an old tree dating back from i think 1300 somewhere in basking ridge new jersey and um it's amazing what he does and that's his true passion so we made a clinical decision to say listen let's break on treatment for a couple of weeks because we want to see how things settle in so luckily that ended up being the right clinical maneuver in, in that moment was almost to leave it alone. And ever since he's been feeling really good and back to what he's doing. And um, so grateful for a patient like that to allow us to do all these maneuvers and be really cool with, um, you know, kind of experimenting a little bit and knowing that, hey, you know, we're not gonna really hurt you for the long term, but this is something that we need to go through to make sure we're giving you the right treatment, so. And as a clinician, if you're trying to help your patient and you're you're doing your best to, to use clinical decision making to put them through things that should be helping them, you're doing them a favor than just, you know, leaving it alone altogether and, and let, leaving them to their own devices. So uh, I think it's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing this video with us and coming on to talk about it. And Jeff, thank you for your clinical pearls and expertise and all those light bulb, bulb moments that you provided. It definitely yeah. shed a lot of a, a new light onto this video. We appreciate it. I've got a couple closing remarks for our audience as well. If you have videos like this, they're confusing, they're a little intimidating sometimes, or and you want really to help, cool. <laughs> or it's just really cool, yeah. And you want to talk about it, please feel free to email us. Um, email is abby, A-B-B-I-E, at Balancing Act Rehab. We'd love to take a look. Maybe we'll do another episode like this. And also, if you like learning from Dr. Jeff Walter today, please check out his MedBridge courses. They are awesome. Thank you guys both so much for joining us. And thank you, audience. Thank you. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Danny. And thanks, Abby. Thank you. I'll see you guys again soon. The information on this podcast is not intended to replace the care provided by your qualified health professional or to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on Talk Dizzy to Me. Please contact us at Balancing Act Rehab if you think you could benefit from vestibular therapy.